standing and singing together hymn 83. Please be seated. Let us let us pray together. Great God in heaven, how we thank you again for the hour of worship. We praise you that uh, your people are able to gather, that your people are will, willing to gather. Uh, Father, in so many cases, uh, one of those two things or both are not present, either not uh, able or, or even indeed not willing. But Father, there is in a congreg- this congregation a desire to worship you, and, and I praise you for that. Father, uh, God, you have created man to worship you, going back to the garden. And ever since then, we recognize that the life which man lives is to be a life of communion with God. And that is the life we desire to live. God, we're thankful for the priesthood of Christ by which we're able to draw near in a way the Old Testament saints never could and never knew. But, Father, we confess to you that uh, despite all of this, the greatness of Christ's work and, and even the desire which exists in our hearts to worship you, that we still have this awful sense of weakness which we bring to the table. It would almost seem, given those considerations, that worship would be better than it is, uh, and yet it is still marked by weakness. Uh, and uh, as one of the presbyters reminded me that worship consists not of so much the inward and the extraordinary. Those things are often present, thank God, but the, the ordinary course of worship is the outward and the ordinary. Those are the means of grace. And so there is an ordinariness, there is a mundaneness to worship, O oh God, which we confess and which we fight against. We want our souls to be stirred. We want our affections to be raised high, but very often they lay low. And we, we, we need you, O oh God, to... To, to stir them and to bring them higher. We need you to warm our hearts with thoughts of our Savior and with the good news of his gospel. We need you to stir us up to diligence and to a holy walk and to a fervent love for the brethren, uh, to a desire to see those who are lost to be saved. In many ways, O oh God, as we often pray, uh, 
It's, it's as though uh, our eyes or our glasses are covered with mud and we can't see anything spiritual and we need you to wipe it away so that we can look plainly on the good things that we have. Wipe away the stain of sin. Wipe away the worldliness that we bring into this place and that clings to us. Father, as we confess uh, again so often that our hearts and our minds are full of the world, even now. But you've given us Sabbath rest in order to rest from the world. Father, I confess to you as the pastor, I'm not free of it. So often the world just just comes crashing in. Even, uh, well, I won't say during the sermon, but during the earlier parts of the, of, the, of the worship service, the world just has a way of clinging to us. And the reality is uh, this is the result of spending six days in it. And you've called us not out of the world. Who could go out of the world? You've called us to live in the world, but not to be, uh, as we say, of the world. So, Father, help us in this. It's a strange it's a strange balance to maintain as weak, sinful creatures to have a place in the world, but not to be worldly uh, and to have a place in the church. But again, not to be worldly. We want to have a pervasive holiness that marks out our lives to hear the call. Be holy, even as I am holy to partake of and share of the divine holiness. Gracious Savior, we look to you in your high priesthood and we ask you. Not only to go on interceding for us, but as your heart goes out to us to help us. For we are weak and we are sinful and we are tempted. And uh, our hearts and our hearing are dull, even as the writer of the Hebrews says. We need you to open our, 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 our eyes and our hearts and our ears, soften our hearts. We need you to give us faith and to help us to have clearer views of you and your priesthood. And, and an experience of that effectual power flowing to the believer. It is so wonderful to experience your deliverances over and over again. Not only the first work of salvation, which we call conversion, but again and again when we find that we are tempted most. uh, We see not only that your heart goes out to us, but we experience your saving power. Uh, There is something wonderful about being delivered out of the hour of temptation by your priestly influence on our lives. And we praise you then as our great high priest. And we wish to know you more and more. Not only so that we would worship and adore you as you really are, but so that our salvation would rest secure in your priesthood and that we would reach up to a full assurance of hope unto the end. Nothing short of that. A full assurance now, but until the end as well, so that we wouldn't waver uh, with a weak and a doubting faith, but that we would arrive at certainty, which is the true the true essence of faith, certainty concerning our Lord, entertaining no doubts, as Calvin says. I know that my Redeemer lives, we are able to say. And so, God in heaven, we pray that we would have an experience not only of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, but also as he has declared in Psalm 110, a king forever. One who comes out of the line of Judah, son of David. Would you rule in the midst of the church? Would you give us a sense, O God, in a time of of political upheaval in our nation, That Jesus Christ reigns as the king of the church and indeed king of the nations. We pray that we would look to you as your church as the lone king of this place and of the church at large. We pray as we just had presbytery that we would have a sense of the unity that we have with our brothers everywhere. And that together we're joining in one act of worship and submitting to our one and only king, Jesus Christ. We pray that by your scripture and through your ministers, your rule would would be exerted and exercised over the church, and that the people who are your sheep would humbly submit to your rule, 
And by your Holy Spirit, you would convict them of their every sin that they might turn uh, from them and worship you by a holy life. God, we pray for the nations. We recognize you are the king of the nations. You rule the nations. You are able to deal uh, with the sinful ruler and you're able to bring up the righteous ruler. Uh, And certainly we'll see that in Exodus this evening. God in heaven, we look to you in your rule of all things. And we ask you that we as Christians people would not be anxious or fretting even today. And especially not today as we set aside the anxious toils of the world. But we ask you that we would rest content in your heavenly reign and to look forward with expectant hope, the good things that you have for your church. But then, gracious father, as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was a scripture reading. I want to look at John chapter 17. We, we were considering last time, and I want to consider again uh, in, in the sermon this morning, and then again in chapter 9 we'll see um, the, the priestly intercession of Christ. Uh, and I asked the question last time, and I'll ask it again, what does this intercession consist of and what does it look like? Well, we call John chapter 7 the high priestly prayer, and we have a picture of what his intercession consists of. Uh, we read in Hebrews that he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. But it is not, uh, as I said last time, and I'll say again, an act of persuasion. Oh, Father, won't you be merciful? But it is an act of agreement. And see just how much it is an act of agreement and unity uh, between the Father and the Son. John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you have, uh, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they receive them and truly understand that I came forth from you and they believed me. You, uh, they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Which you've given me and I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you 
And these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy, have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. For they are, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. And let us stand together in response to God's word in singing the doxology. Praise God from Turn with me to the back of your hymnal. Now at the Psalter Selection, uh, look at the Psalter Selection uh, 32, Psalm 67 and 68, page 631. I'll read the unbolded and together let us read the bolded. Psalm 67, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. That thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously And govern the nations upon earth. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase. And God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. 
Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. The congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye lie among the sheepfolds, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and salmon. The king of God is as the hill of Bashan, an high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in, yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits even the God of our salvation. He that is our God is the God of salvation, and unto God the Lord belongeth the issues from death. Let us praise the Lord now by standing and singing together in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, hymn 222.
Please be seated. I lamented to, to a pastor friend of mine that uh, there's only two, 223 and 222, two hymns in the hymnal on the priesthood of Christ. And he said, you can only sing Jesus, my great high priest, so many times as we consider his priesthood all the way through chapter 10. Uh, but we will sing it a lot, I think, uh, until we get through chapter 10. And it is a wonderful, it only occurred to me in, in reading it or singing it the first uh, time around in the early service, what a fitting summation of the sermon it is. Uh, And so uh, there's a line in there I want to go back to in the sermon, uh, as a summary of the sermon. But now if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. Uh, 28 is something like a summary of the chapter. This is our fourth sermon from the chapter. My focus is really 25 through 27. Uh, and as I say, when I read 28, just think of him summing up the argument that he's been making there about Christ's eternal priesthood. But look especially at verses 25 through 27. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law. And here's the summary appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Well, as I say. Our interest, our great interest is the three verses, 25 through 27. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for your word. Uh, This is, in many ways, as I'll argue, a pivotal text in the book of Hebrews. Uh, So important, which is why we're taking verse 25 again, uh, both the conclusion of the prior text, but also uh, intimately uh, bound up with what is said in verses 26 and 27. Uh, God in heaven, give us clear views of our great high priest in heaven. That, that's our great prayer. So that we might sing hymn 222 and, well, the other hymn. Uh, <laughs> we wish there were more. But uh, we, we, we want to sing from the heart to our great high priest. And we want to, to see him as the source of, of, our, of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something I had said... Uh, in the sermon Sunday night was uh, a characteristic mark of the new covenant is plainness and boldness. That when the word is preached, it isn't veiled as it used to be veiled. When Moses' uh, face shone with the glory of God, he used to put a veil over it. And Paul says that actually is an important marker of his ministry. It's an indication that Moses' purpose was not so much to reveal and make things plain as it was to obscure And the plainness and the clarity only comes with Christ. When we turn to the Lord, uh, who is the Spirit, then uh, we receive clarity. We receive liberty. And so the purpose of a New Testament minister, among whom Paul was one and I am one, is to make things plain. I'm making this point to say uh, that's the purpose of this sermon. Uh, Chapter 7 has proved difficult. And I think the last sermon maybe was a little too difficult. And uh, and one person even said so, uh, but that person from the early service said, uh, also, thank you. I was greatly helped. And so I want to make things as plain as I can. 
so that, as I've been saying, we might have clear views of Christ and his priesthood. Uh, some of what I will say is just a repetition of what we considered last time. But I also recognize these are new ideas. They must be. Because for me, they're new ideas. And uh, many of them I'm arriving at uh, through a study of Hugh Martin's book, The Atonement, which, as I see it, is uh, an even greater help to me in my understanding of Hebrews than any of the commentaries I'm reading. Clear views of Christ. That's what we want. And so we have these three verses, 25 through 27. Last time I said something uh, that I want to amplify here. A single idea, really. Uh, that I almost made in passing. I wonder whether you even caught it. And that is uh, an idea that uh, we arrive at when we compare what is said in verse 25 and verse 27. Verses 25 and verse 27, uh, they both speak of salvation uh, under, under different headings. An eternal salvation flowing to the believer First, under uh, the first heading, verse 25, you have the work of intercession. Christ in heaven interceding for the believer by which we are said uh, or we are told he is able to save us to the uttermost. Verse 25, therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And eternal salvation is seen as flowing to the believer through an eternal intercession. Intercession or priestly intercession becomes the basis of an eternal salvation. But on, in, in verse 27, we have a separate heading uh, where he speaks of an offering, a once for all offering. Christ does not need daily like those high priests uh, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There's the second heading, the work of atonement, the work of the cross by which he puts away sin once for all. There on the cross through a bleeding savior, an eternal, perfect, once for all salvation flows to the believer. And so you have the work of intercession, verse 25, and the work of offering or atonement, verse 27. I want to see these two things in connection with one another. And to suggest to you that there is great value in seeing these two things in their connection with one another because both aspects of his work shed light on the other. Intercession sheds light on the work of offering. The work of offering on the cross sheds light on intercession. And in reality, neither can be fully understood or appreciated without the other. And so rather than speaking of them separately, I would rather see them as two aspects of a single work, seeing both as the fountain from which an eternal salvation flows to the believer, the intercession and the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is why it's important. The goal of the epistle is uh, stated in different ways. One is that verse 11 of chapter six, we might attain to a full assurance of hope until the end. That we would have a confidence in Christ that was unshakable. That could bring us all the way to the end of our pilgrimage, even into heaven itself. Uh, but also, I, we could say, uh, similarly, there is our ability now to draw near to God through him. The, the, the efficacy and the power of prayer that we presently have. Why is prayer powerful? To save the believer as he conceives him as, as, uh, as sorely tempted in the moment of temptation, chapter 2 and chapter 4. It's because of our high priest in heaven. And when we go to him, he is able to help us. That's the argument. But again and again, I've been asking the question, do we know the kind of priest we have in Jesus? And we impoverish ourselves, beloved, when 
we reduce the work of Christ and his priesthood to just one aspect. Here is what I mean. There is a tendency among Christians to reduce the work of Christ, excuse me, the work of salvation, which Christ purchases to the work of offering, to limit his salvation to his work of atonement on the cross, to locate the entirety of our salvation as believers in his priestly offering at Calvary. The trouble with this is it leaves out the work of heavenly intercession almost entirely. It reduces and diminishes the priestly work of Jesus Christ. It looks upon Christ crucified for salvation, but it forgets about Christ in heaven, even now. Have you noticed, uh, this is something which I'm still unfolding for myself, but have you noticed that thus far, now with verse 27, the emphasis begins to change a little bit. And it will even more so in chapters 9 and 10. The work of offering, the work of sacrifice will be looked at and explored in detail. But up through chapter 7 until verse 27, that the emphasis of the epistle has been Christ as he is now in heaven. Christ as he stands before the Father as our intercessor. Christ as he has entered into the heavenlies now standing ready to help the believer. And only when we've properly understood that work. Are we prepared to understand the work of offering? Which is why even here we have the order. We would say offering then intercession because that's a chronological order. But the logical order that's presented here is intercession then offering. It's an interesting argument. But the reality is that the believer now deals with Christ as an intercessor. We deal with Christ as he is now in heaven. And it is, uh, it, is, it is as we behold him as our great high priest as he is now in heaven that we are able to deal with God. All of the arguments, all of the encouragements, all of the admonitions find as their basis Christ's intercession, his work as an intercessor. And so it will not do for the believer to reduce the priestly work of Christ to the work of offering. To consider him only as he is crucified. We must have a fuller conception of his priestly ministry, which includes the work of intercession, and also to recognize that each idea informs the other. The better we understand his intercession, the better we'll understand his offering. The more we understand his offering, as we begin to enter into that side of the argument, the more clearly we will behold his work of intercession, and the more comfort and strength and encouragement will flow to the believer. So that he will reach up to a full assurance of hope until the end. Consider each idea in turn. Although, as I say, we'll be looking at them in their relation to one another throughout. Because they are two aspects of a single work. Christ's priestly intercession. That's where the argument begins in verse 25. That's where the argument has been. Uh, and here, in, in many ways, I'll uh, merely be reviewing and expanding, expanding upon uh, what we saw last time. Christ's priestly intercession comes by divine appointment. This is what we see in John chapter 17. What we don't find, and the thought I want us to, to rid ourselves of forevermore, is the idea that his intercession, which is an Arminian view of intercession, is his pleading with the Father. Oh, Father, won't you be merciful? As though there was anything in the Father that would suggest otherwise. As though the father lacked an inclination to show mercy and that he was all wrath and anger towards the believer until Christ took up his place in heaven and persuaded him otherwise. 
I am afraid that is how uh, we often conceive of the priestly intercession of Jesus Christ. It's an act of persuasion. That is wrong. That is wrong uh, from every standard. It is wrong from John chapter 17 where we see Jesus Christ speaking of the agreement that existed between the Father and the Son from eternity past. It is wrong from the standpoint of what is said here. How does Christ come into possession of his priesthood, which is to say his place before the Father? He comes into it by divine appointment. Chapter uh, 7, verse 21, which is just a repetition of Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. It's the Lord who not only appointed him, but who swore that Jesus would hold his priesthood permanently. That Jesus Christ in his priesthood as he stands before the Father would never be set aside. He would never be replaced. That he would always assume a place before the Father in his priesthood. That's what the Lord not only appointed him to do but swore would happen. And in swearing he will never change his mind. And so as he stands there before the Father. Making intercession. He is doing what he is supposed to do. He is fulfilling the exact task the father has given him to do. And he is pleading. Just as he pled in the garden of Gethsemane. Or as he pled in John chapter 17. Only that the father's will be done. Oh father what you have willed. Won't you bring it to pass. What you have purposed and determined concerning the elect. Let salvation forever flow to them through me. Again, he is not there in order to persuade the father to be merciful. Do you have any sense of that in John chapter 17? He is rather there before the father and his place again is an eternal one. Because the father through him wishes to be merciful and he wishes to express and demonstrate his mercy to sinners through the priesthood of his son. This is according to the father and according to the son in their agreement concerning the salvation of the elect. The best way for sinners to be saved. Through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Which again we have a wonderful picture of in John chapter seven, uh, 17. What we notice between the father and the son with regard to the plan of salvation which Jesus was accomplishing. And which he was about to present to the father and in heaven is agreement and unity. You and me are one, he says, one in essence as God, one in our agreement as to the plan of salvation. Again, not a picture of disagreement, but a picture of agreement. He is only there asking the father to do what he has promised to do and what he has purposed from eternity to do. That is the life and the soul of his heavenly intercession even now. Furthermore, something that stands even behind the work of intercession and the priesthood which Jesus Christ assumes in his humanity, there exists between the Father and the Son an essential unity. The Son and the Father are one. And in this relationship, the Son loves the Father and always does the will of the Father. And as he takes up the work of the priesthood, He is merely bringing this to pass in yet another way. The father, on the other hand, always loves the son. And in doing the work that the father has given him to do, 
The father expresses his love and his pleasure on the son. A love and a pleasure which he always had. But which he expresses in his priesthood. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The point is the priesthood is nothing to change the relationship between the father and the son. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is just an expression of their forever unity and their forever love. It is, uh, there, it is not a disruption but an expression of their relationship. And the reason that this is important for us to see is because it explains to us how the intercession functions. We need to recognize how much the Father loves the Son. And how much the Father delights in the Son. Especially that He would take up the work about which they were in agreement from eternity past. That through the priesthood of His Son, the saving grace and love and mercy of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit would flow to the elect forever. And not a single one of them could ever perish. And therefore, because we recognize how much the Father delights in the Son's intercession and His priestly ministry on their behalf and how willing He is to accept it, we should also recognize how willing He is to accept us We are accepted in the beloved. Listen again to verse 25. He, that is Jesus Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here is a a, a ministry of fellowship and love between the Father and the Son. The Father accepts the Son. He delights in the Son. Those who draw near to God through him, will God not accept them as well? But how are we to conceive of the work of intercession? In pleading the will of God with respect to the salvation of the elect, what is he pleading? What is he saying? What does the work of intercession consist of? He is pleading, and this is where the two ideas overlapping, uh, seeing them in their relationship, I mean, is so important. What he is pleading is nothing less than his once for all sacrifice for sin. This was something that we sang in the hymn. Listen to it carefully. His powerful blood did once atone. That's verse 27. And now it pleads before the throne. His powerful blood did once atone. And now it pleads before the throne. Or as Hugh Martin says, the intercession by which we alone are saved even to the uttermost. That's verse 25. Is just the perpetual presentation of the continual burnt offering of Calvary. Don't see it as a separate work, beloved. See it as the same work carried further. The work of offering carried in to the presence of the Father. That is why there's such value in seeing offering and intercession in their connection with one another. Each sheds light on the other. We ask, what is Jesus Christ doing in heaven as he's interceding? He's presenting the offering. What is he doing on the cross when he's offering? He's interceding. Look at the cross. For Christ to die on the cross... To offer himself as a sacrifice for sin once for all and there to declare it is finished was to make an end of sin. That's what we find in verse 27. He died offering himself once for all for the sins of the people. He didn't need to make a further offering. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Romans chapter 6. The finality, the once for all quality of his offering on the cross is what is being stressed when we come to verse 27. But none of this is to suggest that the cross, that on the cross, his work was finished in the absolute sense. That when Christ declared it is finished, that his work as a priest was finished. 
That he had accomplished his task and there was nothing left for him to do. That is an inadequate view of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it it would be to deny plainly the teaching of this passage. Because the great emphasis of chapter 7 is that he holds his priesthood forever. And that he ever lives as a priest to intercede for the sins of the people. That he never ceases to act as a priest on our behalf in heaven. Yes, when it comes to offering. That he did once for all. No further offering to give. He made a full end of sin. But as a priest, his work goes on. And so you have to take them together. You have the offering, but the offering must must have its place before God. Not only has Christ died once for all for the sins of the people, offering himself, verse 27, but now he stands in heaven ever presenting that work. His powerful blood did once atone and now it pleads before the throne. And now that he stands forever in heaven, so does the validity of that once for all sacrifice. No one can ever overturn God's acceptance or pleasure in that sacrifice because no one can ever replace Christ as our advocate before the Father. And if you think of it, if Christ were to cease to stand before the Father for just one moment... On our behalf, so our salvation would be lost. But thank God that he is always there, ever presenting that work on our behalf. And he will never leave. And so salvation can never leave us either. Our place in heaven is secured by him. That's the first point, the intercession of Jesus Christ. A continual presentation of the once for all burnt offering on Calvary. But now... Uh, We are beginning in verse 26 and will more and more in chapters 9 and 10, uh, though in chapter 8 we'll look at the better covenant he brings, look at the other side, the offering, the work of offering on the cross, the thing that he is presenting in heaven before the Father, the thing that the Father loves and delights in. And that is... The priestly offering of Jesus Christ. Verses 26 and 27. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like those high priests. To offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins. And then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all. When he offered up himself. You notice he's describing the work of intercession. In terms of the work of offering. As he intercedes for the people in heaven, he doesn't have to bring continual burnt offerings. He's already done that once for all. But his life as an intercessor is a continual presentation of that once for all sacrifice. Do you see it when you take those three verses together? That's the value of seeing them, the relationship between 25 and 27. And that's the whole burden of the sermon. The first thing we see being stated here is once again the statement, it was fitting It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And again, I just asked the question, do you know what kind of priests we have? If you did, you would you would agree with this. It's fitting that he's like this. In fact, I recognize I couldn't be saved in any other way. It's the same argument you find in chapter two. It was fitting, verse 10, for him uh, or excuse me, uh, for whom all things are and through whom all things are in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is to say, it was fitting to have a crucified Savior as our salvation. Or here, it is fitting that we have such a high priest. Fitting in what sense? 
Well, fitting in the sense that if ever we were to be saved as sinners, he should be such a high priest as he is. Fitting that if God should ever accept him and us in him as our advocate, he should be such a priest. Fitting, that is, if ever the needs of man considered as a sinner upon uh, whom the wrath of God rests should be met. Fitting, given all this, the situation that man finds himself in in relationship to God as a sinner and even the Old Testament believer under the law and the Old Testament priesthood. Fitting that we should have such a high priest as we have in Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of priest was he? We've already seen, and this has been the great emphasis of chapter 7. Let me repeat it here, although it's not the emphasis in 26 and 27. We've seen that his priesthood is an eternal one because he is an eternal person. And that his priesthood stands forever in the presence of God on the basis of a divine oath. God will never change his mind concerning this priest. He will never set this priesthood aside. He will never replace him. None of that was true of the Old Testament priesthood. None of them stood forever, but Jesus does. It was fitting to have a priest like this. He's calling to mind the former argument. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 26. It was fitting to have such a high priest as this, holy, innocent, undefiled. Uh, We can take those three words together because they all represent one idea. The idea here is simply that he was free from sin entirely in his humanity. He was a priest like all the rest without sin. We've already seen that in the book of Hebrews, and here it is stated once again, holy, innocent, undefiled. He was a man like us, not only a priest like all the rest, but a man like us. He partook of our humanity, sin accepted. And thus he does not need, verse 27, like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. This is a fundamental difference that we cannot fail to appreciate The problem with the the old priests was not only that they all died, verses uh, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But that wasn't their only problem. Not only that they all died and thus there was no permanence, but also more fundamentally that they were all sinners themselves. Every single one of them, before he could offer uh, a sacrifice for the sins of the people, had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner. You couldn't say of any one of them, holy, innocent, undefiled. In fact, the sense in which he was holy, uh, we'll consider in a moment, but it wasn't this. Chapter 5, verse 3. Because of it, he is obligated to offer up sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. Here is a point that the Old Testament saint was bound to notice. That the priest, the high priest, who offers atonement for my sin, is himself a sinner. How unsatisfying such a ministry must have been to the earnest soul under the law, looking for assurance and looking for uh, the pardon of sin. How could salvation ever flow to the believer through such a priesthood? The simple answer is that it could not. But Jesus assumes an entirely different ministry, not only one that stands forever because he's an eternal person, but also one that is sinless and perfect. Again, we can only notice how different the priesthood of Jesus Christ was to that of the Levites. For them, all their holiness was external. 
It had to do with rituals and robes and oil. Uh, the kinds of things that we will see in the giving of the law as we continue to work through the Pentateuch. There was a holiness to those priests, but it was all external and it was all ritual. But Jesus Christ doesn't come to us in the robes of Aaron. He comes to us as one who possesses holiness, perfect sinlessness, intrinsically, as one who is actually holy. In that sense, again, it is not what he shares in common with sinners that is stressed here, but what he does not. Separated from sinners. That's the second phrase. As one who was actually holy, innocent, and undefiled, he is separated from sinners. In other words, he is one who is holy. That's what holiness means. One who's separate. Again, for him, his holiness was not a matter of ritual. The, the, the priests of Aaron were set apart by their robes, by their rituals. But in reality, they were sinners like all the rest. And so you could never truly say of them separated from sinners, but you can of Jesus. Jesus, as one who was separated from sinners in his priesthood. For him, it is something that is real. Not something that is ritual, but something that he actually possesses. His holiness actually separated him from sinners and placed him in a different, uh, a different class and category. His whole ministry was, was and is one of sinless perfection. But there's something even greater than that, which brings us again to the work of intercession. Look at the next phrase. Exalted above the heavens. This is something that the epistle in chapter 9 will soon go into in greater detail. Uh, asking us the question, where does he present his intercession? Where does he present the, the offering which he has made once for all for sin? The answer is in heaven itself. His intercession as one who is holy and perfect, that is to say, was not offered as, as with the priests of old in the temple or the tabernacle, which was but a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality. Unlike them, he enters into heaven itself. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, that is the tabernacle, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You not only see there again in those verses, as we will soon see, the interrelationship of the two ideas, the offering and the intercession of Jesus Christ, but we notice the location of it, not in a building that man made, which was just a copy, a pattern of the heavenly reality, but into the reality itself. Everything that was... Uh, was uh, External in the Old Testament, whether the, the holiness of the priest or the holiness of the Holy of Holies is real for Jesus. He actually appears in the presence of God and it is in the presence of God into the Holy of Holies where he presents and where he intercedes. And he is able to do so, obviously, because his holiness and his perfection allows him to do so. And so this is just another reminder, this uh, this phrase uh, exalted above the heavens and speaking of his offering. Just another reminder that thoughts of what he offers on Calvary must bring us into heaven itself, where he ever leads to intercede, which is to say where he ever presents this offering. 
But what was involved in offering? What did he offer? Well, we see from chapter uh, 7, verse 27, that what he offered was not sacrifices, but one sacrifice. And that one sacrifice was himself. He does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, plural, first for his own sin, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Do you understand the language that is being used here and what is being said? He is both the subject and the object of that sentence. He offered up himself. He is both the priest who offers as one who is sinless and perfect and the lamb that is slain. As one who is sinless and perfect, undefiled, spotless, separated from sinners. Both, uh, both, or, or all of those things, excuse me, are true of both aspects of his office as a priest. Reminding us once again of what was said. Speaking of his death in John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18, that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and so I take it up again. Death and life were in the power of his own hands. And so I want to revisit an idea here. He offered up himself that we considered last time as well. That in speaking of the cross in this way, that he offered himself. Any idea that in death he was the victim or the passive agent is ruled out entirely as though death was something that just happened to him. And on the cross, all he did was suffer and die as a passive agent. The cross, as we have seen, represented not that Christ's life was taken from him, but rather that his life was given by him. He died there on the cross, not by death's will, but by his own. And we read that in one of the Gospels, don't we? That he yielded up his, his soul to the Father. That death was something that he accomplished. We often hear, uh, and I'm going to say this in the communicants class, that salvation is the result of the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the life of obedience that he offered, but also the death which he suffered. But there is a potential problem in that way of putting it. The idea that uh, in death Christ did nothing, when in reality, as Hugh Martin says, the cross was his greatest doing. And that it was not only an aspect of his obedience, but it was the high point. He was obedient, Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, even to the point of death and death on a cross. Death was his greatest doing, his greatest act as a priest where he offered up himself for the sins of the people. Or sometimes we speak. And I'm, I'm shamelessly stealing from Hugh Martin here. Sometimes we speak of the passive obedience of Christ on the cross, which is fine as far as it goes. But again, there is a potential misleading idea present in that phrase because there was nothing passive about his obedience there. He offered up himself. His sacrifice of himself on the cross, again, to borrow the language of Hugh Martin, is full of priestly action and priestly agency. It was his doing. It was his will. It was his action. I lay down my life so I take it up again. All of this will go into in the sermons to come. But here I'm just emphasizing that death was his doing. He offered up himself for the sins of the people. And because that sacrifice was spotless and undefiled, and because the one who offered that perfect sacrifice was himself spotless and undefiled, 
He is able to put away sin once for all by the single offering, never to be repeated. The cross makes an end of sin. This is what was fitting, beloved. Verse 26. Fitting that we would have such a sacrifice offered on our behalf by such a priest. Because the stain of sin and the guilt it brought upon the sinner. The wrath of God which rested upon mankind as a result could never be removed in any other way. Another point that I'm eager to go into. Just how much this one sacrifice satisfies all of the demands of God and his holiness. And we will in sermons to come, Lord willing, chapters 9 and 10. But let us simply see here and agree that it was fitting if ever man was to be saved, if ever sin, which is sinful beyond measure in the eyes of God, that such an offering be made by such a priest and that there could be no, there could be salvation in no other way. But returning to the idea of intercession and bringing the two ideas together. In closing, we might simply ask the question once more. Viewing the son as presenting the offering to the father. As he stands now in heaven ever making this plea. Does the father find in this offering any reason to reject it? Does he find in the son any reason to reject what he offers? The answer is he finds every reason to accept it. And to delight in what he offers. And we should as well. We should rest content and satisfied in his priestly work. We should share the father's acceptance and delight of the son in himself and the son in his priesthood and his priestly work. We should recognize that he has performed a work that can never be overturned or set aside, that he has satisfied the demands of justice on our behalf. And that as he ever stands in heaven presenting that plea, so our salvation stands in heaven and can never be overturned or set aside. In other words, for Jesus Christ, this priest, to offer this sacrifice continually in the presence of the Father makes him the source of an eternal salvation. Verse uh, 9 of chapter uh, 5 or verse 25 of chapter 7. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our salvation, in other words, will stand just so long as our priest does. And his eternal priesthood consists not in always offering since he did that once for all when he laid down his life. But in always pleading the merits of that single work. And so long as the validity of that, of that work stands in the eyes of God. And so long as that priest stands there which is to say forever. So long will our salvation rest secure in heaven. That is why beloved he is able to save forever. And that is why we are able to be certain nor uh, need we ever fear in seeking to draw near to God through him that God will accept us. He always will accept the one who seeks to draw near to God through him. And so you see, I think the whole epistle hinges on these three verses. Chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. The priestly work of Christ seen under these two headings, that of intercession and offering, uh, and two ideas which, thank God, we will continue Uh, We will continue to explore Jesus Christ having gone into heaven before us as a forerunner involves all of this. And praise God, we will continue to unfold the riches of this ministry in, in sermons to come. Amen. Let us now come to the table of the Lord's Supper.
we're just working our way through uh, the New Testament. Now that we're doing this weekly, I'm not sure how we will continue to do it going forward. We're almost out of passages. Uh, but I said this in the first service. It's okay. It, the argument against doing the Lord's Supper every week is that it just becomes a ritual. Uh, and, and it becomes meaningless, and the freshness is lost. And so I feel this pressure to say something new every time. But actually, uh, its value is seen in its repetition. <laughs> and so uh, there is value in ritual. Now, if ritual is all you have, you have nothing. But if there is an intrinsic uh, power to the ritual, then you do have something. And we, we, we know that we must because Jesus Christ attaches his own word of promise to this ritual. This is my body. This is my blood. And so there is uh, something profoundly sacred about the Lord's table. Uh, And even if I just read a little scripture and say a couple words each time and we just keep going through the motions, we need to recognize that we are dealing with our great high priest in heaven uh, because he says so. And that's why we seek to do this. Now, that reminds me of what what I want to say about First Corinthians chapter 10. And that is the fact that. Uh, and I, or 11, excuse me, uh, not the part about taking the body in a worthy manner. We'll get to that next time, Lord willing. But the fact that these Corinthians were treating it as just uh, a meal. They didn't see it as something which was sacred. And that there was their sin. In fact, uh, some of them, well, does he say some of them were killed? Yes, God even killed some of them for that. A number of you even sleep, he says, and many are weak and sick. Do not trifle with the holiness of the Lord. He says, I hear that division exists among you, and in part I believe it, verse 18, skipping to verse 20. When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. What he's saying, and this shows a slight difference between our practice in the early church, is that for them it was a meal. The problem is that that they were treating it as though that's all it was. It was just a meal. They were eating to their fill, uh, even to the point, let's say, the (laughs) the first people went through the line and took all the food and there was nothing left for the people behind them. Something like that. But the problem wasn't even that so much as the fact that it was just a regular meal to them. Now, we don't have that temptation here, I don't think. <laughs> but it's still just food. It's just a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. And what do you make of it? Do you recognize that this is something other than food? That this is not just an ordinary meal. You're not satisfying your hunger. But that there's real spiritual nourishment that's being offered to you. There's something sacred in the ritual of the Lord's Supper. And it is in profaning the Lord's table that we bring, uh, we, we bring ourselves into Danger is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. And he goes on to say, verse 21, this is chapter 10. We looked at this last time. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? And so it's sacred because we're dealing with the Lord here. We don't want uh, this is the danger in a secular age. The temptation to drift into high church practices. Uh, it's that we, we would manufacture the sacred. We don't want to do that. We want to find the sacredness in exactly what the Lord appoints. Things which are so ordinary by the outward appearance, which is why the temptation exists to despise these things, these things and treat them as common. But the spiritual and the spiritual minded believer recognizes 
that these are sacred again because they come by the Lord's appointment and because of what they represent, namely the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so you have an idea, I think, in what I've already said on whether you should partake or not. Listen to the words of institution from the same chapter. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's nothing common about this, beloved. These are the outward and the ordinary means of grace by which Christ offers himself to his people. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the table of the Lord's Supper. We pray that it would be to us a means of grace and a blessing to your people. We, we, we praise you for it. We ask you that you would give us greater strength, greater assurance, and that, Lord Jesus, in your priesthood, you would deal with us even now. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Beginning with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. As I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Moving now to the, to the, the cup. As a reminder, the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this cup to you. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And now uh, another hymn, although not in the section on the priesthood of Christ, I think you'll recognize it as belonging there. Hymn 187. Let us stand together and sing.
We do have the communicants class following uh, this uh, service almost immediately following, I'd say, five minutes, uh, and, and we'll try to clear the room. Parents are welcome to stay if you want. It's just up to you. Um, and we'll do that for five more weeks, so six weeks, bring us up to Thanksgiving, and then people start to travel uh, if, if they're doing that this year. I have no idea, but typically that's what people do. Um, so five more. We are recording them, so you can listen to them, and parents, you may want to go home and listen. They're 15 minutes, super simple. And yes, I am capable of that, I promise. Uh, we have um, we have a meal also following this for anyone who wants that the food is being provided. And so if you wish to stay for a meal, uh, come next door. Uh, so with that said, receive the blessing of God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Love you.